Last week we were talking about wisdom and how to walk in wisdom and what it looks like when somebody walks in wisdom. And I told you something about being wise at the very end of last week's talk. And I'd like to focus our attention on that very last thing about being wise today. Because that very last thing about being wise is the subject of most of the rest of the book of Ephesians. He takes this one little thing, which looked like maybe just kind of a tail on the end of the wise walk as wise thing, <laughs> and then he expands on it for the rest of the book of Ephesians. At least maybe most of the rest of the book and maybe all of it will try to explore that as well. This one feature about what it means to walk as wise. And I will suggest to you that when I say this feature right out loud and you stop and think about it for one second, you will not be so sure that you want to be wise. Because the last thing about wisdom that we read about last week is this, submitting to one another. So if I told you, if you want to be wise, what you need to do is in all your relationships, submit. Does that sound wise to you? And... It really means all your relationships. We'll explore that in a minute. In all your relationships, what you should do if you want to be wise is submit to the other. Well, I got to say, when I say it like that, at least, it sounds actually the opposite of wise. It does not sound to me like a good idea to say what I need to do in all my relationships is submit. Now, this requires some explaining, if you ask me. It troubles me to find such statements in the Word of God. Well, this is part of a bigger discussion, of course, and we got, we got to go back to the beginning about how do we walk. We found out in chapter 2 that we, are, we have a set of good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do that we are called upon to walk in. There's a, some, apparently God has a to-do list for each of us a set of good works, a set of things we might do that would be good for others that God has prepared for us to do, and we are called upon to walk in those good works. In chapter 4, we come to this like pivot point in the whole book of Ephesians where Paul says, so then, because of the gospel that I've been announcing to you, this amazing work of God that reconciles us together in one new man and reconciles one new man to God by the service of Christ, 
on the cross, our redemption, our, our atonement brings about two restorations of relationship, relationship between us and relationship to God. This is the good news of the gospel. If you ask the question, what did Jesus die to provide to us? The answer in a word is fellowship. Restored fellowship. Real, live, active fellowship. Relation, positive, loving, good relation to each other and to himself. And so, Paul says, since all that's true, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, if we look at calling, the word calling in the book of Ephesians, it always has this future. It's a, it's a calling to a certain hope. And that hope in Ephesians is the promise of the fullness of God in the life of the one new man, the body of Christ. What God is getting at in the book of Ephesians is the fullness of God on display in the body of Christ. Not just in me and you and him and her, but in the us of us. And that is our hope in the book of Ephesians. The building up of the body into the very dwelling place of God. The temple. The full indwelling of Christ by faith. For the full comprehension together of God's love in Christ. That's the conclusion of the prayer in chapter 3. So Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power in the inner man by the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, so that we would be occupied by Jesus Christ and in so doing come to comprehend or at least begin the giant eternal project of somehow understanding the love of God in Christ. And he says at the conclusion of that, the, and in doing so, we would experience the fullness of God, which clearly in this text is not something you can experience all by yourself. It's something we experience together. Then he says at the beginning of chapter 4, or well, this, he elaborates on this walk in a manner worthy of the calling, this hope. He says, eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word keep there is the word tereo, which is what shepherds do with sheep. They keep them. They watch over them. They make sure they're fed. They take care of them. They keep all the sheep together. And we are supposed to watch over the unity that Christ has purchased for us to keep an eye out for unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The bond of peace is that reconciliation that Christ has purchased by the hard work of the blood of His cross. That peace between us is the thing of supreme value. And that peace between us, also in our peace between us and God. And we are called upon to 
be eager, to be in a hurry to keep that. We don't make it. We don't provide it. But we keep an eye on it. We want to see it develop and grow in each of us. And then he describes in the second part of chapter 4 that we do this in putting off the old man, the flesh. What is that? Well, we studied that, right? The flesh is me by myself. It's the do-it-yourself Christian. That's the flesh. The flesh is the old man, the independent, isolated, you might say alienated, self. That is, of course, who I am if you subtract the work of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit from my life. Oh, and the fellowship of the body. It's me trying to do life myself. It is the very Spirit that animated Adam and Eve when they turned against God. Let's do it ourselves. So we put that off and we put on the new man, and there's only one new man. So the new man that you put on and the new man that I put on are the same new man. And the new man is the body of Christ, the collective Christian. The Christ-trusting, love-knowing, mutually serving, truth-speaking, reconciled community of Christ. We put that on. He goes on from there. He says, then be imitators of God. That's the first commandment, the summary commandment in chapter 5. As dearly loved children, how do you imitate God? Only as a child of God dearly loved. If you forget your identity as dearly beloved child, you will not be a very good imitator of God. And we are called then to walk in various ways. We come back to the word walk. To walk in love. The love that's demonstrated by the sacrifice of Christ. It's something done on purpose. It makes sacrifices for the real benefit of the other, the one loved. It's unconditional. In other words, I don't need your permission to love you in this way. I can do it whether you respond properly or not. I can do it because I decide to do it. Love, like Jesus. The last thing, it's, so it's intentional, it's sacrificial, it's beneficial, it's unconditional, and it's incarnational. It shows up in person. Jesus didn't love us from heaven. He became one of us. So we're called upon to walk in love. We're called upon to walk as children of light. This children of light, this is the genetics of the gospel. To be a child of God. To be a child of the truth of the gospel. And we read uh, more about that in chapter 
5. And then last time, to walk as wise. So we walk in love, we walk as children of light, we walk as wise. And that means we live according to the fact that in Christ, you are fully reconciled to God and to everyone else in the body of Christ. Christ has put all enmity to death on the cross. So as one of His, I have nothing to hold against anyone. I sometimes forget that. But that is a fact. That is not uh, an emotion. That is not a feeling or an attitude. It is a simple fact that in Christ I actually have nothing to hold against anyone no matter what they do to me. That's hard to get your mind around, I admit it. But you are fully reconciled to God. And so to walk as wise is to seize the moment, any moment with anyone for the sake of Christ's goodness put on display. Making the most of the time, the text says, seize every opportunity. See every moment with everyone as an opportunity for just this. That's wise. Read the situation according to the Lord's will. He says, practice and develop an understanding of what pleases the Lord. And then he says, become a person who illuminates the world. (laughs) Filled with the Spirit, he says. And what we looked at last time is what that means, and that means the Spirit fills you with faith in Christ. Spirit always directs our attention to Christ and His cross so that we are strengthened to trust Him, fully engaged in the life of the body of Christ, addressing each other with singing, singing to the Lord from the heart, He said. Giving thanks for everything all the time. Really? Everything all the time? Mm -hmm. Because we know that God is at work in everything all the time. So wisdom gives thanks. And then this. Submitting to one another. In reverence for Christ. I want to ask four questions about this. Four questions. Who, why, what, and how? Who am I supposed to submit to? Who is supposed to submit to whom? If everyone's submitting to everyone, how's that going to work? Why? What is the motive? Why? What moves me to do this crazy thing? 
in all my relationships submit. And what does it get us? What's the purpose of it? Why? Then what? What exactly does it mean to submit? It's kind of not what we first think. And then how? Where do I get the strength to do this? Because this does not sound easy. And how do I go about it? How? So those four questions. Let's start with who. Who's supposed to submit to who? Well, if you read the rest of the chapter, and cha the beginning of chapter 6, you'll find a list. A list of various relationships. Basically, a list of the sort of normal relationships in the normal household life of the day it, when Paul wrote this. So you have wives submitting to husbands. You have husbands submitting to wives. Yes, because all of these, this whole list is a list of how, how and who is submitting to who. And we began the list by submitting to one another. It's kind of general. And it's even bigger than that. We get to children. Children submit to your parents and parents to your children. Now, if I said to you, here's how to be a smart parent. Submit to your children. We've got some explaining to do, but that's what this text says. How are you a wise parent? You submit in your relationship with your children. Servants to their masters. And masters to your servants. Who is submitting to who? Well, these... Everything on that list, that's pretty much the whole list that follows, but everything on that list is just an illustration of the general commandment, which is here in the church, everyone submit to everyone. So it's not just in these relationships within the household, it's also in all relationships within the church. And if I think about where someone might have a relation to a master, that could extend outside the church or the other way around. If I'm a member of the church and I'm somebody's boss... They might not be part of the church at all, and yet I'm called to submit to them in this text. You see how it's everyone to everyone? All Christians are called upon to develop a lifestyle of submission in all their relationships. How is this not just nutty? This idea should characterize the church. Submission. This is not the way of the world, but it is the way of Jesus. We might recall that Jesus is the one who said, you know how the Gentiles are. You guys are not to be that way. You know how they exercise authority. They, they lord over one another. But here in the church, if you want to be first, you put yourself last. 
he's talking about the same thing. So why? From what motive and for what purpose? It's right here in the text. He says, in reverence for Christ. And the word reverence is literally the word fear, phobos. It literally means to have a proper terror of Jesus. Do you have a proper terror of Jesus? And all that means is to recognize the amazing greatness of the eternal Son of God who is the world's hero, who gave his own life, who, first of all, had one, came and became one of us, the, the biggest step down in all conceivable history. And as one of us stepped down and down and down until he was actually in last place and gave his own life freely for our redemption. It is out of reverence, out of correct, awful horror for Christ that we are moved to this lifestyle of submission. Reverence for Christ is the realm in which this operates. It is really impossible to make any sense out of it otherwise. In reverence for Christ, submitting myself to others is fitting, sensible, and right. Submission to others is from reverence for Christ who submitted himself to us. Remaining Lord all the whole time. Submission to, uh, to others is from reverence for Christ and it's also for reverence for Christ. Here's what it's not motivated by. It's not motivated by the worthiness of the one another's to whom I submit. You don't need to deserve it. You don't need to be great for me to submit out of reverence for Christ. Christ does, but you don't. <clears throat> it's not motivated by, your, by the worthiness of the people you're called to submit to. They might not deserve it. It's not motivated by the demands of culture or society or the other person. It's utterly inappropriate for a husband who's practicing this lifestyle submission to demand it from his wife as though he was worthy of it. We'll get back to that. The elevation of Christ... The elevation of Christ is the motive and the purpose of this mutual submission we are called to. I submit to you to exalt him, to actually put my, to make my life a display of his nature. And so to glorify him, I submit to you. It's not really because you're so important. 
Submission imitates the profound love of God in Christ. It puts it on display. Submission identifies my good works with the works of God the Father. This is what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. They may see your good works and glorify Him. We will see that the reverence for Christ in submission takes different forms depending on who's doing it for who. Wives don't submit to their husbands in exactly the same way that husbands submit to their wives. Certainly you can see this with parents and children, bosses and servants. This submission is something I engage in joyfully and voluntarily for Christ's sake. It follows only. It only follows from my experience of the love and the grace of God in Christ and by the Spirit. Otherwise, it makes no sense whatsoever. In the light of God's love and grace, it is the only sensible way to live. It is walking as wise. And it would be unwise for anyone who has any understanding of God's grace to us in Christ, it would be supremely unwise for them to live any other way than a lifestyle of submission in all their relationships. Wow. So that's who, everyone, and that's why, out of reverence for Christ, what does it mean exactly? So when the Scripture says submit, what is it actually telling you to do? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean to enter into a, ma a permanent master and slave relationship as the slave. It just doesn't mean that. That is the world's way of talking about submitting. And when, that's why it bothers us so much to be told that we're supposed to submit in all our relationships because that's what we think it means. It doesn't mean that. It does not mean I, in reference to anyone else, say, your wish is my command. doesn't mean that. How do we know it doesn't mean that? It does not always require obedience to the one you submit to. In other words, to submit is not defined as commit yourself to obey. Different. In some of these relationships, it does mean that, but not all of them. Submission is not subservience. Notice that parents are to submit to their children. Children are not, our parents are not called upon to obey their children ever. They are called upon to submit to them in a very particular way described in this text. So, what does that mean, submit? 
if it doesn't mean obey. Masters are called upon to submit to the people who work for them. That doesn't mean that the boss is supposed to obey the employees. The supreme example of submission in this text, used as an example in this text, Ephesians chapter 5, is Christ himself. Christ himself, who in this text submits himself to us, the church. Well, there's no indication anywhere in the whole Bible that the Son of God is obligated to obey his people. No, that's not it. That's not what submit means. It can mean that in a particular relationship, but it doesn't mean that generally speaking. Christ submits to the church while always remaining Lord. And the very word Lord means the one in charge. So parents, when you submit to your children, you don't put your children in charge. But you are called upon to submit to them. So what is it? Here's a stab at a definition. It's not as simple as just letting everyone else have their way. Can you imagine trying to live like that? I don't think you can. Just let everyone else have their way. Whoever's standing next to you gets to tell you what to do. Well, that's crazy. And that's not what the word means. What does it mean? Submission is, here it is, voluntarily relating to another person for the real benefit of that person at your own expense. You ready? I'm going to say that again. Voluntarily relating to another person for the real benefit of that person at your own expense. Oh, well, that is exactly the same as everything we've read a Christian is supposed to do in the book of Ephesians. To walk in love is to do that. And so we notice here that walking in love is to live sacrificially for the benefit of the people around you, to submit, to rank your needs below theirs. The word itself really literally means to place below, to place myself below you. That doesn't necessarily require me to obey you. But it does require me to pay the price of your benefit. I think it was perfectly described in that text we read from Philippians. It says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, you notice how it is always tied to out of reverence for Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, 
Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you feel encouraged by Christ? If there's any comfort from His love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, another word for ranking myself below the people around me, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think you could just take the word submit and put it in front of that text and call it a definition. To look out for the interests of others even above my own. Now this requires me to think carefully, like it says in Hebrews, consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds. This requires me to think carefully about what is actually good for the people around me. So let's go back to parents and kids. Would it be good for the children if you submitted to them in the way that says, okay, kids, you tell me what to do? Would that be good for the kid? No. So it would not be proper submission for a parent to treat his child that way. In fact, what the Scripture, the text says, is bring them up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. That's how you submit to your... Oh, and don't needlessly frustrate them. We'll preach all about that when we get there. Dad, you should not be a source of frustration in the life of your children, which you will do if you exalt your needs above theirs. So don't instead put their needs above yours and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Just an example. To look out for the interests of others requires me to think carefully about what is actually good for you. And you might not correctly understand what's good for you. Because we're all children. When parents submit to their children, that doesn't put the children in charge. It does elevate the needs of the child above the needs of the parent in the mind of the parent. That's what it is to voluntarily relate to another person for their benefit at my expense. To do what you need over what I need. That's submit. And when we get to talking about each of these relationships, it's very important that we keep that in mind. 
what it is and what it is not. So, how? <laughs> Where does the strength for this come from? Because even if I define it that way, this ain't easy. How does someone actually become a submissive person? We don't even usually regard this as a positive quality in a person. If I described you, if I, if I was introducing you to someone and I said this, you know, what I really like about this guy is how submissive he is. Would you appreciate it if I introduced you that way? Well, maybe here in the church after this sermon you might, but in general, we don't even regard this as a good quality in a person. He's submissive. Now, we mean something particular by it that doesn't have those problems, but still. My personal observation is that nobody is an advanced submitter. I know people that I regard as mature, mature, wise believers who are undone by the challenge of submitting. It is not simple. How do I get the strength for this? We're all beginners on this. Well, the power, the power, the power it requires comes from the fullness of Christ through the strengthening ministry of the Spirit in the inner man. It is the answer to the prayer of chapter 3 that you would be somehow strengthened with power by the Spirit in the inner man so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. When Christ dwells in your heart through faith, you become an imitator of Christ who behaved this way. And so you do also. You not only can, you want to. When I am full of the love of God in Christ together with all the saints, then submission becomes sensible to me. The whole idea of, a sense, of submission as a way of life is total nonsense apart from knowing and trusting Christ experiencing the fullness of his service makes me a servant. When I see it in Christ, when Christ subordinates himself in order to lift me out of the pit of sin and death, that is what happened. When Christ subordinates himself in order to lift me out of that pit, then I find the real power of humbling myself in order to lift someone else. And I can see submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, not as a burdensome duty, but as an amazing opportunity. I can go around spreading the glory of God in the face of Christ in just this way. 
I can go around, and if I bump into you, I can do something good for you at my expense because I want to see Christ exalted. It's powerful. It is not weak, which is kind of how we think of it. We kind of think of it like that. If I introduced you as an especially submissive person that I'm calling you weak, Christ is not weak. The greatest exhibit of strength in the history of humanity was not my will but thine, O God. And it was also the greatest act of submitting to one another ever, ever exhibited. When I see Christ... I want to imitate Christ. And as we do this together, the fullness of God develops in and among us. The fullness of God begins to find its true expression in the life of our fellowship, our body, our church, as we submit to one another, as we exercise this deep wisdom There's a few observations I would make about how to go about it. One is this. I can practice submissiveness unilaterally. I mentioned this already. I do it for Christ's sake, primarily. I don't need you to deserve it. You can act, you can sin against me, and I can still submit to you in this way. One way I do this is by forgiving the fact that you sinned against me without even needing you to ask for it. Without even needing you to acknowledge that you have wronged me. Because I'm in Christ. You can wrong me all day long. I'll be fine. And so I can exhibit love toward you anyway. I can do this unilaterally I don't need you to deserve it. I don't need your permission to do it. I don't need anything at all from you. Except maybe a little information about what would be really good for you. And you might not be good at that, so I might have to figure that out for myself. The second thing I would say about how you do this is it it looks to me like the right way to go about it depends on the nature of the relationship we're talking about. If you go on and read the rest of chapter 5, we don't always do it the same way. Depends on who it is we're dealing with. So Paul's going to give us these examples, and we're going to go through these examples of the common household relations. We'll take each one in turn, and as we do, we need to remember that each of these is, a, is only a particular application of the general commandment. Submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. 
This general idea applies in every relationship. So it's not like when Paul says submitting to one another, and then he goes on to talk about husbands, wives, parents, children, bosses, employees. When he goes on to talk about those other relationships, that, that those are the only relationships where we practice this principle. No. It applies in every relationship. The third th- observation I would make is this. Real submission is something that you have to give. It can't be demanded from you. In certain relationships, a person can require obedience. A parent should require obedience from his or her children. But he cannot demand submission. He has to inspire it. Submission is an act of the heart on the part of the child. You've seen the little cartoon, the kid sitting down on the curb with his dad. He's saying, on the inside, I'm not obeying. That's not submitting. Might be obeying, but it's not submitting. You can't really demand submission. You certainly can't be submissive and demand submission at the same time. You can advise it, but you can't demand it. So, I invite you I invite you to join the great humility race. To join the great humility race. Here in the church, we are involved in a competition with one another. The competition is a race for the bottom. Jesus has placed himself beneath us all, to lift us all. And he calls us to join him there. And if you are in a position to look down on anyone, you are also looking down on him. You are despising the cross. That is unwise. So I invite you, us together, to become those people who fight for the right to pay for one another. Let us approach everyone we meet with this question in mind. How can I exhibit and exalt Christ by helping you? That's the question. How can I exhibit and exalt Christ by helping you? That's what this text is about. That is real 
wisdom. Father, thank you for this challenge, this uh, thing that when we first look at it, it seems crazy and impossible. Like, why would we even want to? But Lord, we thank you for this great supreme act of submission on the part of our beloved Savior. Lord, we ask for that ministry of the Spirit to strengthen us with power in the inner man so that that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. We will begin to understand His love and we will become loving like He is loving. That we would exhibit this deep wisdom, this lifestyle of submitting ourselves to the people around us. We need your help, Lord. So we ask for your help. And we thank you for the honor that we have to bear the image of Christ in this way. In his name we pray. Amen.